2: Hello and welcome to the February edition of Signal, a Medianet podcast, a monthly take on the media, journalism and faith. I'm James Poulter. I'm joined in the studio by Ruth Jackson, Deputy Editor of Premier Youth and Children's Work, and Sam Hales, Deputy Editor of Christianity Magazine. Uh, Hi, Sam. Welcome also to the pod. Thank you for having me. Uh, And thanks, uh, Ruth, for welcome back. Hello. Um, We are all well in the pod this month, and thanks for joining us. So we are going to be looking uh, this month at uh, the subject of kind of satire and comedy later on in the show, with an interview with James Carey, uh, previously writer of uh, things such as Miranda, and also uh, does a lot of work with people like Milton Jones so that's coming up later on in the show but the, we're going to start off this month by looking at some of the stories that have gone by in the past month or so and go round the table so um, Ruth why don't we start with you what have you uh, kind of brought to the pod this month to, to have a look at what's caught your eye in the news this month
3: so um, our, at the weekend I was reading the Guardian newspaper and in the magazine supplement there was an article called uh, Mothers Who Regret Parenthood and it sort of caught my eye because obviously we write quite a lot about parenting and things like that in our magazine. And it basically was um, quite a long article about lots of mothers and there was a father in there as well who effectively, you know, were desperate to have children, really excited about having children, but then almost immediately um, regretted having children. And and there was so there was one person who said, I felt like and still feel like I made a mistake. And it was, I mean, it was sort of quite tragic obviously at points but it was interesting because they weren't saying um that they don't like their children so they were saying we fully love our children we adore having our kids but we definitely if we could go back and do it again we wouldn't have kids um and there was actually an interview with one of the children who's now 17 and she was sort of saying well actually I'd much I'm really pleased that my mum was honest with me because um yeah, which which was really weird as well. So so it was a really interesting article. Um, but actually, I thought it raised some interesting questions. They were talking about kind of the sanctity of motherhood and the fact that people never really share how difficult it is. And I thought, actually, there are quite a lot of um, parallels with what we do in the church where, you know, things like childhood and... Um, Married, and there's lots of different things where we're not really honest about how hard stuff is. So then, when someone does find something difficult, they think they're the, literally the only person struggling with that.
2: Yeah, I think that the whole kind of parenting point. Yeah, we um, there are obviously lots of courses and stuff like that mm. that are coming through now that major more of those kind of things. But certainly from a kind of media perspective, in certain Christian media, I don't think we're necessarily kind of willing to go into that place of talking about kind of yeah. There's a, that constant uh, kind of tension between talking about. All children must be a gift from God. all mm. children are kind of you know, there to be loved and doesn't we don't necessarily always acknowledge the hard part of that yeah. for some people that comes as an unexpected thing or it comes as something that they weren't you know, kind of necessarily geared up for when it kind yeah. of comes along and and that's hard. But what was kind of the what kind of made this stand out to you particularly?
3: Well I, th- I think the fact that it raised that question of actually maybe we need to be a bit more honest and I think you know we live in that kind of filter culture where everyone puts their perfect personas on Facebook and all their kids are uh, you know shiny, happy, always doing hilarious things? You don't see it's 3 a.m. I am dog tired, I want to suffocate my child. You know, you don't see that kind of thing, probably helpfully so, but uh, but actually, if we were a bit more honest about things. Then, um, mm. then, then perhaps people would share their experiences a bit better.
2: Miss uh, Sam, you guys cover a lot of this kind of uh, topic in in the magazine, obviously from you know parenting, marriage, and all those mm. kind of things. Do you think that we we kind of go to those kind of harder places in some of the coverage that, particularly within like the Christian publications and that world? You know, how easy is it for us to deal with those slightly more touchy ends of the subject?
4: Sure, I think Ruth's absolutely right that we need to as the church, be realistic about what people go through. And, you know, we have a section in the magazine called Real Life, and we talk about all kinds of issues from, you know, depression and um, illness and things that in people in our churches are going through. But as you, you're quite right, a lot of the Christian media would perhaps not want to touch that because it is uncomfortable. And I think certainly evangelical culture, there is still a feeling of well, we have to have the right answer, we have mm. to go to the Bible verse, we have to have our mm. three-point sermon plan laid out. And sometimes it is a little bit too neat and tidy. And I'm all for opening up, you know, real life, what people are actually going through and discussing that. And I think the Christian media has a unique place in this because some of those things can't always happen in church circles. You can't do a sermon just on that one issue because you've got people in the congregation from all kinds of different places. Whereas in a magazine article you can focus in on just one person's story and I think that could be helpful.
2: Yeah, I mean when I was reading this this piece that you mentioned, The Guardian, I think one of the, the interesting things that I was thinking is that if this was coming from a kind of you know a, a faith-based perspective, how easy would it be to actually find those subject matters mm-hmm. to actually come Forward in that kind of instance. I don't know if you guys encounter that. Yeah, you know, with when I mean, perhaps you can talk a little bit more about that kind of how you go about kind of actually finding kind of cases for these types of stories. Is it that it, do you find that because there's an element of, well, I've got to bring my faith into discussion, that it's harder, that it's easier to kind of get people to come forward and be I, kind of willing to, I to think, share?
3: I think, in some senses, it's it's harder to find someone when you're coming from a faith perspective. So, we actually just we've also got a real life section in our magazine, and we had an amazing youth worker talk about that hurt the fact that her husband died while she was being a youth worker and she sort of brought that pain into her young people and children and sort of spoke to them very openly about the fact that she was incredibly sad and broken and that God met her in that sadness but it didn't stop her being sad and it's such a brave story and I think we rarely have people like that stand up in church and talk about it and maybe sounds right maybe standing up in church isn't the right place because actually I think we've also got to bear in mind that there will be a huge amount of pain in the congregation of people that maybe can't have children or that haven't found a partner mm. or whatever and um, so you need to be aware of kind of that pain when you're talking about the struggles of childhood because in some senses it's kind of kicking them in the teeth if they can't have children anyway mm. um but I do I just think generally we need to be a bit more honest in the church I think there is a real sort of level of hierarchy in the church which which we've erroneously put where actually a married couple are way more uh, like above a single person because a single person is going to fall into sexual sin and you know there's no other types of sin (laughs) yes Um, I'm sure
2: that never happens with anyone else never.
3: (laughs) so you've got the married couple and then above the married couple becomes the veneration of the people who've got children because they know everything they've experienced everything and I just think actually that's a really unhelpful thing let's not forget that Jesus was a single man do you know what I mean
2: yeah exactly i I suppose also it's not just this subject of you know i I think obviously as you mentioned this article is kind of bringing out this idea of i've had kids now maybe i'm not so sure that that was a great idea and that is a taboo subject both in Mm. the media and also in church and and those kind of parallels kind of come forward i I think
3: as well though there's a sense in which um in sort of in the secular world if something is really hard we tend to just sort of give up don't we Mm. and i think in the church um We've almost gone so far the other way, where it's like, actually, it's really hard work. That's part of the taking up the cross and all of that. And it is part of taking up the cross. And we do need to work harder at these things. And we need to like invite God into those situations. But actually, I think we also need to just acknowledge that sometimes life is really, really tough. And I think some of the best sermons I've ever heard have been the, the ones where people stand up in their brokenness. Because so often you hear the sermon that's like, here's what I struggled with. I've now come through it. God has healed me. Mm. And what about the people who are like in the midst of that struggle? Yeah. and up there kind of almost in tears saying, look, I am still struggling with this. I'm still struggling with singleness. I'm still stu- struggling with brokenness. I'm still struggling mm. with sexual temptation.
2: Yeah, and I suppose there's an element, particularly when we're trying to cover these kind of stories, whether that's in you know, kind of radio, TV, publication, documentary, whatever it might be, that you kind of want that kind of three-act structure <laughs> that we all kind of crave, right? It's like yeah. there there was the problem, there was the difficulty, there was the solution, mm. and, and life's not actually just that simple, is yeah. it? I mean, it's just not that easy. And so is that, you know, when you're kind of putting these kind of features Together for you guys for, mm. for the publications is that is that something that you kind of. Uh feel that tension of it's like oh there's not a resolution to this and and how do you cover something when there isn't yeah
4: i have to say actually a lot of the people that i interview they're quite realistic about that so i remember uh, a feature that you know we're, we're currently looking at in the magazine of this woman who went through a lot of issues with debt who i think lost her house and at the end of that she talks about how she became a christian in the middle of that and that was amazing she got baptized but at the end she says you know we still have our struggles mm. and life is still like this and i think that's quite important at the conclusion of a real life story Let's not just wrap it up all neat and tidy, especially if the person you're interviewing is saying, "Look, it's not all completely fixed here." Um, and as you say, avoid the temptation of the three acts, <laughs> three-part structure. Perhaps in some ways, mm. I mean, by all means, you want the resolution at the end because you want to give people hope. But I think it's important at the end as well to to hint that you know Jesus doesn't completely solve all of our issues in the here and now, there are still mm. things we've got to wait for to come. Uh, perhaps in this person's life, they're still looking for a resolution in, in another way. Um, and as you say, you don't have to completely package everything up completely neat and tidy because life isn't always like that. And I guess the only other thing to say is, is as well as encouraging people to, honest, to be honest, I wouldn't want to miss as well the important kind of pastoral implication on church level where actually you do want to help someone mm. through it. You don't want to just put your hands up in the air and say, well, isn't life messy? Isn't this mm. difficult? You do want to offer practical solutions as well. Yeah. So I wouldn't want people to take away from this conversation that there's no place for that because Mm. actually you know if you are in a church situation there is an onus on you to be pastoring uh, pastoring people through things counselling them through I mean especially with something like children I wouldn't want a church leader to say put their hands up in the air and say oh yeah isn't it terrible that you regret having kids um, but that's okay Mm. you think actually is there not a way to help someone through that so even I don't think we should be afraid of changing people's minds and bringing them to a place where they actually say no I don't regret having children anymore because I've talked it through because I've perhaps got the help I needed Yeah.
2: Yeah. I suppose it's just kind of finding ways to reveal these kind of stories more often and, and yeah. having more open dialogue around it, which obviously is kind of what this this piece was doing. Um, interesting. If you've got thoughts on that, you can always uh, let us know. And we'd love to kind of hear if you've kind of been through a similar situation or something that you uh, kind of resonate with that. Then you can do that by contacting us uh, via Twitter on at the media net. Use hashtag signal and we will uh, find that reply and come back to you. Uh, Sam, you've, you've brought a story uh, or a couple of I'll stories have. as well. What um What <clears throat> have you got this month?
4: Well, um, I was looking actually on The Guardian as well, as it happens. Um, Other sources are available. I know, right? I know. I have to say, I don't normally spend most of my time (laughs) reading The Guardian. But when it comes to media stories, I do find The Media uh, Guardian is very helpful. Mm -hmm. And earlier this month, it was announced that Wikipedia has banned the Daily Mail. They've called the Daily Mail an unreliable source. And so now those who work on Wikipedia will be encouraged not to reference the Daily Mail as a source. Um, It's been deemed generally unreliable. But what I find interesting is, of course, you can still link to Russia today. You can still link to Fox News. Um, And apparently the Daily Mail has a reputation for poor fact checking, sensationalism and flat out fabrication. I think that last phrase I find quite difficult. I'm not sure if I'd accuse it of flat out uh, fabrication any more than I would... A left-leaning newspaper like the Guardian, mm. for you know, leaning left, and the Daily Mail leaning very heavily right. So I thought that was an interesting decision. Yeah, I mean,
2: obviously they've been accused of uh, some of the kind of the, the alternative facts mm. <laughs> de- debate, which we will come back to later on in the show after the break uh, with James Kerry We do have an alternative facts quiz, so uh, <laughs> stay stay tuned for that. But th- this kind of um use of Wikipedia has kind of come on a long way, really, hasn't it? Because I mean, we I remember that when we were kind of you know studying, most of us similar kind of age and went through this whole thing of like, don't use Wikipedia as a source. That that's definitely not the right place to, to kind of go referencing and now they're actually being mm. you know we're the ones that say what's a good source and what's yeah. not that that is kind of transcended that kind of whole piece i mean you know, th- this kind of debate with the daily mail it's uh yeah you know, do you think that that we're going to see this with all of those other sources russia today fox news you say i mean yeah, do you think th- that think they should be
4: shutting those down if you want to be consistent i would think particularly russia today just because of the links to the to the russian government seem very heavy Um, so I think if you want to be consistent, then, then yes, you're going to have to look at other sources as well. I mean, I don't have a, I don't have any great issue with Wikipedia saying this about the Daily Mail. I just think if you're going to go off the Daily Mail, you have to really seriously consider some other sources as well. Um... I mean, certainly it's not the first place I'd go for my news. But then mm-hmm. there's a wider discussion here. It is the most visited news website, I think, in the world. It's very
3: good for entertainment news, isn't it?
4: <laughs> Apparently so. I wouldn't know, Ruth, <laughs> but you would. Sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, Speaking you, from experience. You hear, <laughs> you hear similar, similar people, especially in Christian circles, especially in some kind of young liberal media circles criticising The Sun, for example. And again, you know, that's the most read print newspaper mm-hmm. in the country. So you can't just say, oh, this stuff is ridiculous. We can't take it seriously, because clearly many people do take it seriously.
3: I guess the question comes down to like where do you draw the line? Like if you if you stop the Daily Mail and then you know and then you stop Fox News, it like where do you where do you stop at what and and what makes a reliable news source? I guess that's an interesting question, isn't it? And and probably something that as Christians working in the media, you want to be thinking. You know, am I really? Mm. Well, we spoke about this a little bit last time, but am I really fact checking? Am I being integral to the story? Am I in any way twisting it? Because you know when I worked in TV and we were sort of editing stuff, you you would sort of change the order of stuff, but still hopefully... You know, re- retain the essence of the story, but even tweaking that is that staying integral to the story if it didn't quite happen in that order?
2: Yeah, I mean, the f- interesting thing with this point around not just around the Daily Mail, but some of the other kind of sources that were accused throughout this kind of mm. the, the recent kind of subjects that we've been talking about with bre- Brexit and with, with Trump in particular around being fake news or presenting alternative facts or whatever it might be, there's particularly, I think, in Christian circles, there's been an element of like they've become slightly taboo kind of subjects mm-hmm. because I think actually in reality, there's probably quite a lot of mm-hmm. you. Know, well upstanding members of the community that do subscribe to these papers and mm. magazines that are reading them as you mentioned for celebrity gossip or whatever <laughs> it might be on a kind of on a daily basis and do you think that we kind of shy away a little bit in the kind of the church in particular for kind of acknowledging oh yes I read this in the Daily Mail it somehow could become something you're not allowed to say but yeah it's, it's I remember
4: or- I remember when I uh, interviewed Reverend Richard Coles recently who's quite well known for appearing in the media he said that he is a typical guardian reading vicar in a Daily Mail parish mm. so he was very aware of that kind of political divide when he's when he's ministering to people. Mm. And I guess as well, I was quite impressed with him because I, I think he does seek to understand the other point of view, even though he clearly doesn't agree with it. I think that's very important for both Christians and those who work in the media you know let's understand both sides of the story so if you're a christian let's understand where your atheist friend is coming from rather than writing them off and if you work for a left-leaning uh, newspaper let's at least try and understand why some people for example voted brexit rather than just saying they all hate immigrants and they're mm. all racists
2: yeah absolutely i think that this kind of comes uh, to this interesting point now with the way that we're transitioning i'm going to bring my own story into this as well That the thing i noticed this month was particularly interesting is that the um, the satirist magazine private eye recently mm. reported its highest circulation figures Uh, to date now obviously in the grand scheme of things nothing compared to the onlines of of the Daily Mail Private Eye famously not necessarily having its own website and things Mm -hmm. like that relying upon upon print but I mean do you think that that's where we're kind of heading now is that we actually have gone so the news has become so absurd in some cases (laughs) that the satire is somehow something that we would rather go out and read I mean like is that something that you guys kind of find yourselves kind of tapping into reading those kind of parody articles and, and the comic strips?
3: I do think that's something that came up Particularly after, um, you know, Trump was announced, I think there was a kind of um, a wash on social media of just, like, comedy articles and, you know, those little videos where they've put together completely out of context the comments that he's made. And that seems to be much stronger than sort of Um, kind of editorial commentary about what it actually means for America and all of that. Because I think in some senses when when stuff is so confusing and, you know, whichever way you voted in whatever capacity, stuff is confusing and, and the country, you know, America and the UK is clearly quite divided and there's a lot of disunity In some senses, you're all united over the comedy, whether you agree with it or not. There's a sense in which, I don't know, I was watching um, a comedy programme last night, have I got news for you? And and the fact that actually pretty much all news now can just... It's sort of satire in itself. You don't even need to create satire out of it because it just lends itself so easily to satire. And I do think, you know, there's always been a fine line between tragedy and comedy, hasn't there? And I think even in the depths of despair, when you're like, what the heck is happening to Mm. the country? You can still find things to be funny with and to sort of take hope out of and mm. and I think that's I think that's a good thing and yeah. i think that's sort of creating
4: I i have to say I love sort of political comedy like have i got news for you mm. i I love that stuff and yet I also think that that sort of material can at times make us all a little bit too cynical about mm. politics and it's quite interesting look at the difference between you know America and, and the uk in that sense because I think here in the uk we can just be so cynical and mm. I don't always see as much of that in America although they have famously of course got the onion which is brilliant yeah um, Um, But I I just think sometimes, you know, especially around the Brexit thing, people say, well, it was a a protest vote and people don't like politicians. And you think if people don't like politicians to that extent that they won the referendum over it. I mean, I know there are much more much more going on than just that one issue. But it does concern me that we've got to a point where politicians just seem so in some quarters hate it and I don't think that's a healthy place for a democracy to be in
2: No, I, I think that particularly if you look at some of those shows it, have, I, have I Got News For You obviously also in kind of being one of the main mm-hmm. panellists on that and the likes of The Private Eye but also you yeah, kind of go go broader than that and some of the kind of more absurdist comments the, um, the revolution will be televised has just mm. kind of returned into a new series to kind of come back and talk to uh, Brexit over on um, I think on BBC 2 and BBC 3 uh, and there's I suppose the British side of it I always find uh, my not but is, is more biting or somehow mm-hmm. more, um, you know, kind of driven by cynicism and by sarcasm quite yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. Whereas I find that the US stuff, particularly if you look at some of the sketches that, like, the cold open from SNL for the past couple of mm-hmm. weeks with Melissa McCarthy kind of taking off, um, you know, kind of the, the new um, US press secretary, that there's somehow more silliness, more absurdness, and, yes. and, and with that becomes slightly less vitriolic. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, perhaps we need to kind of see our <laughs> side of the fence become a little bit more more uh, willing to have fun with it and not you know kind of
4: drive everything to saying that this yeah. is the end of the
2: world.
3: Yeah. <laughs> we definitely are a bit darker.
4: Yeah. And th- there was there was a lot of that stuff again with the parody and the satire of you know, after Brexit and and after Trump as well. Oh my goodness, this is this is the end of the world kind of ridiculous overreaction of people. A lot of
3: Armageddon. Yeah. Around. A lot of people were talking about Armageddon. Yeah, <laughs>
4: and and I I became tired of it very quickly on especially on social media. There's only so much. Oh my goodness, the world is going to end tweets that you can take, especially when it's just so constant. Mm. And I I do think again, like there's there's a job for the media there to say guys, chill out. (laughs) The world is not about to end. You disagree with this particular political outcome, whether it's Trump or Brexit or whatever. But here's some informed analysis about what we do think is going to happen, about how it's going to affect your life, and how we will still be here next year. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I I just think, you know, I love the satire, I love all that stuff, but it would be great to see people craving some informed analysis as much as they are the jokes. Mm.
2: And also not just kind of, like you say, taking it to the last common denominator and and kind of driving it into the ground, but the sun and the Daily Mail and the Guardian will all rise again the following morning, so uh, yeah, the next day kind of comes along. Well, we're going to be talking more about uh, kind of comedy and just after the break with James Carey, Uh, so we'll be back with that, and after that we'll be also coming back for a little bit more of our own fun with an alternative facts quiz. So, uh, coming up next, James Carey's interview. The previous writer of things such as Miranda that work with Milton Jones I mentioned before all of that coming up soon. James Carey is a comedy writer for both stage and screen having written for BBC's hit show Miranda and his Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Latest series for BBC Three, Bluestone 42. He's also the author of the play The God Particle, which recently released on DVD and tackles the issues of faith and science. I caught up with him to get his views on how comedy and satire help shape popular culture and whether General Synod is a place for comedy. So, James, your most recent play, and now it's available as a DVD, The God Particle, tackles the issues for um, those who have not seen it from kind of a faith and science collision um, point of view. Uh, And sometimes when those things kind of come together, particularly at the moment, as we're seeing facts and faith, not necessarily having the best of relationships. What do you think that play says at this kind of current climate at the moment?
0: Yeah, people are getting quite obsessed about facts and evidence and experts. And um, I've recently uh, just been listening to the Archbishop of Canterbury Uh, make a joke about the fact that he mentions experts and he was sort of pausing for people to hiss there because he's sort of making a joke that now everybody hates experts. Although he did also say that he'd met up with a whole load of economists and they were getting very gloomy about how the world is looking. Mm. And whenever people mention things like that, I think, yeah, all those economists who didn't see the last crash coming. um, So uh, I think we can be a little bit sceptical about some experts um, when it comes to at least predicting the future. But I guess people get, um, people get quite upset about the idea that facts are being denied. And, uh, and I, I understand that completely. And in particular, though, uh, the thing I want to say into that is the fact that facts are fine, but facts aren't the end of a discussion. They are the beginning of a discussion. Right. So you can start to agree on facts, but actually you need to then talk about what they mean, because the meaning of the facts is everything rather than the facts themselves. And, and
2: that's kind of the point of the play, right? Is around kind of this idea of dialogue between kind of two different people coming from different perspectives and walks of life. Just maybe tell us a little bit about the absolutely the premise So the premise of the play is
0: very much about um, a, a, a scientist, a quantum physicist, who has not really met anyone with any kind of Christian faith at all. It hasn't really occurred to her that somebody rational could be a Christian. And... Um, She meets a a vicar who is um, very happy to argue and discuss and and push back on all of the arguments. I I wanted to write it personally because whenever I've seen uh, faith portrayed on TV or in movies, it has almost always been negative. And that uh, starts to get on my nerves. I was watching an episode of Endeavour the other night and there was a Mary Whitehouse-type figure motivated by Christian faith. Obviously, she's a massive hypocrite. Um, everybody who has faith in all mainstream things they're always massive hypocrites so I thought well if I, can, if I want a fair discussion about science and religion I'm basically going to have to write one myself and so eventually I wrote a play, I don't write many plays I tend to write uh, situation comedies for TV and radio But so therefore the play I've written has the feeling of a situation comedy and when we did the DVD we filmed it in front of an audience and you can hear bits of laughing all genuine laughs, none of it added I can promise you that So, and it's just a question of uh, making sure that there is a debate which is a fair fight in which they almost have access to the same facts but are seeing them very, very differently and seeing how the Christian faith is something which, in one sense, you can be very boringly rational about um, because uh, the gospel is... When you really boil it down a series of facts, which is God made the world, and uh, uh, Jesus was born, and that Jesus was crucified, he died, and he rose again. If you don 't believe those facts i don 't know what 's left mm. um, so uh, so in a sense, there are certain things that we either can we can argue about the facts, but then we can also argue about what they mean and so the play is uh, is hopefully an amusing argument uh, which lasts. Uh, about an hour and a quarter, um, in various scenes. There's a little story in there. It's also a bit of a romantic comedy, and the reason I I put that in is because there is one level on which uh, falling in love with uh, another person uh, is in one one way the same as falling in love with God. That is not a rational thing to do. So at the very start of the play, and I'm not spoiling it, I don't think, the, the scientist, she sees this guy, she falls in love with him, she then realises that he's a vicar. That's the worst person that she could fall in love with because this guy's obviously insane and therefore she spends a lot of the play in denial about the fact that she's fallen in love with him. And so there is a way in which, on faith at least... We, we have facts, but also it is a heart thing as much as a head thing. And so the play is is a way of dealing with that because a play says it better than I'm now struggling to do, if you see what I mean.
2: Do, do you uh, resonate particularly with one of those kind of sides of the
0: argument more strongly? Oh, undoubtedly I resonate with the, with the vicar, um, although I wrote a vicar who was probably not the, quite the same kind of Christian as me. I'm happily uh, evangelical... Um, and uh, sort of reformed, conservative, evangelical, whereas the vicar in the play is probably more... Uh, more in the centre in terms of more kind of C.S. Lewis ish, so you know Anglican
2: rather than evangelical, and, um, and much like that kind of both of these kind of writing experiences that you're going on now. I mean, that's the, obviously not the first thing that you're known for. Obviously known for kind of working on um, a quite a number of notable TV and radio shows. Most recently, obviously starting out with Miranda, and then also working with also other Christian performers as well, yeah. Milton Jones, Sally yeah. Phillips, for example. I mean, do you think that UK comedy where you are writing into now is is a safe space for Christians to express their Particularly in the types of work you've done, is it is it easier than other areas of media and entertainment? I think, I think that it is a safe. I don't feel never particularly under personal attack
0: for things that I think. I think there are two sort of disconnects. Really, the first is that if one proposed something that was profoundly Christian in terms of expression or with Christian characters, and you proposed that to commissioners or controllers, they would be rather puzzled by it. And they would be personally uninterested in it, possibly slightly afraid of it and relatively sure that their audience would not be interested in it and not want to watch it. So although we have had the Vicar of Dibley and we have had Rev, that's that's only two shows and that's a very, very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, controllers and, and commissioners and those sorts of folk who tend to, uh, I've found at least, not know many other Christian people. Assume that this is not something that people are interested in, um, even though the Church of England alone is bigger than any one con- political party in terms of membership. Uh, so I think there's a level of assumption that people are not interested in faith, which I which I just know from the way that God made human beings is simply not the case. When it comes to working with other uh, other comedy writers and colleagues and people that I know and friends that I've made through the through the industry, I think they they find my Christian faith more bizarre and hard to understand, and it doesn't sort of make them angry mm. in a way that maybe 10 years ago with the new atheism there was a sort of a bit of a boiling um, level of anger. I think people now find it rather puzzling more than anything else because we have become so secularised, and, we, you know, I'm, I'm 40, so I'm part of a generation, 41 actually, sorry, um, part of a generation which has pretty much had uh, church not really talk to them at all, mm
2: and no real understanding of why anyone would see anything in it. It seems like comedy is becoming slightly less polite in general, I think, if we were to look at it that way. I mean, the, you look at the particularly the, um, the way in which uh, comedians and satirists have re- reflected on the US election and Brexit in recent months. Is that kind of role of comedy becoming more biting, more harsh over time uh, as you see it right now? I think that it is an, there is an arms race going
0: on, which in the case of um, the Brexit situation here... But also uh, the the action the of Trump in in America, that you know, because Trump just really does say some ludicrous and uh, and offensive things, that. If you're a comedian, it's slightly your job to be the offensive one and to out-offence the the, the patsy um, the patsy politician. Yeah, there's less relation so happening. There is a big arms race going on, and you know um, he has taken a, a bazooka to a knife fight, and people have realised that they're going to have to get some bigger weapons. And well, I think that's exactly what they're worried about. <laughs> yes, I think they are. Yeah, and I have some sympathy with those concerns. So. I mean, Christians are meant to be telling the truth. So in one sense, I do think the church has a lot to say in this, is that we do have to say things that are difficult to say. We have to say them, though, to everyone and not just to people that we think that uh, will make us popular if we if we have a go at. It is interesting, though, to look back. I think we often think that um, satire is very, very powerful. And yet um, I have one or two friends who are slightly older than me who are from, from the comedy world who wrote... For many many series of spitting image, where they mercilessly m- relentlessly showed Margaret Thatcher in a negative, terrible, awful light, and the ratings it got were in the, were, were in the tens of millions, mm. um, got huge ratings she won many, many elections, <laughs> they sort of noticed that no matter what they said or what they did, she kept winning mm. and um And then John Major became Prime Minister, and he also won. I sometimes wonder whether anyone's mind is actually changed by satire.
2: Mm.
0: Um, That isn't to say that uh, we shouldn't say things that are true, and I think the church has a prophetic voice to, to say things that people don't want to hear, and therefore they're worth saying in their own right whether or not they're effective. But I think sometimes people expect satire
2: to deliver some kind of social change, which... I don't really think it does. I mean, in this current debate, I suppose, it seems to have become slightly more acceptable as a Christian to kind of share these little kind of quotable moments, right, whether it's of the politicians themselves or the satirists yes. doing that job. Do you think that's somehow helping the political engagement, though, as you know, as Christians, do we feel that we can come out a little bit more and share that kind of content?
0: Um, I don't f- necessarily feel that, um, partly because my Facebook friends are extremely divided because I have a lot of um, fairly left uh religious skeptics uh, on one side and i have lots of church friends on the other some of whom are also on the right and uh, i have sympathy with both sides although i probably tend more to the right than uh, to the left and obviously towards the church rather than to the atheists you mm. would hope um so i tend to not say anything and i've i've, I've written a number of uh, facebook posts and tweets as well where i've got to the end of what i've written I feel better and now I've just deleted it and I haven't I haven't sent it, I haven't put it up because I think, do I need to say this? Do I need to say it now? Is this going to help? Am I just trying to look clever? And I do think, uh, I do wonder if for Lent at least we could think about maybe taking some time off assuming that the world needs to hear our opinion on everything and mm. uh, maybe thinking that we don't have to share every single meme that happens to agree with what we already think um, especially if we haven't checked whether it's actually true or not, mm. um, but we've merely sh- we've we've shared something that we would like to be true. Um, I, I think we would do better to be more restrained,
2: um, especially within our social networks. <laughs> you have just come, uh, as you mentioned, just from a meeting at General Synod. You're you're kind of part of that whole organisation somehow. We call it yeah. uh, somehow collectively. Do you think that's a fertile ground for comedy? They always say so. Whenever I meet
0: anyone on Synod who says, um, "Oh, you should write a sitcom about this place," obviously. They have no idea that a sitcom like that would never be commissioned. Um, And also comedy depends on... People being able to understand what's going on. I've been on set General Synod 22 years now and I have no idea what's happening most of the time. So it's a it's a pretty baffling, uh pretty baffling place.
2: Some interesting characters there, particularly.
0: There are some interesting characters there, um, but uh, <laughs> not 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 many I feel that the general public could relate to. But may, maybe not, I don't know. I mean in the in the we now live in the days of, of niches and niche comedy, perhaps. So it seems that you can find an audience for
2: basically anything, right? Yes,
0: that's right. You can find an audience, especially if you're not trying to make money out of it but this is something that you want to do or have to do, Um, which is why I wrote The God Particle Play in the first place and which is why I'm writing a a play, uh, uh, a show for this year about the Reformation, because I want these things to exist and now, at the age of 41, I've realised I don't need to ask the BBC's permission for these things to exist. I can just go and do them. And so um, that's exactly what I am doing. And, And I do think there is more scope for that but I think Christians can often feel like they need to ask permission from people to do things or try to find little bits of money overall I've just realised that trying to get a £2,000 grant off somebody will take you about £2,000 worth of work so just get on and do the thing and um, hopefully the money will, will come in at the other end but I'm in a slightly privileged position to be able to say that because I do make a decent living out of writing comedy for the television but there are very low barriers to entry. And I think if you do have a voice, if you do have something specific to say, if you can do it consistently to a relatively high level and are prepared
2: to learn as you go, I think, I think there really are some very exciting options open available. Well, I suppose if you're a young writer listening to this and you're ready to come and uh, pitch something in, maybe just make a YouTube video and send it to James. But if not, James, thank you very much for joining us on this month's episode of Signal. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks there to James Kerry for joining us on uh, this month's episode of Signal, and if you've got questions for him or follow-up, then you can obviously let us know by sending us a tweet to at the media net and use hashtag Signal, or come over and find us on Facebook, search for the MediaNet there, and you can come and leave us a comment. Now, back to uh, the, the world of facts and alternative facts, and guys, this is going to get a little bit uh, a little bit fun, a little bit crazy. Sam looks genuinely <laughs> nervous. I'm really <laughs> quite nervous. I don't know what's about to happen. Yeah, Obviously, no competitive spirit there from either of you um, so um I, we're going to play the alternative facts quiz um so i'm going to read each of you a a, a fact or possibly an alternative fact and um we will go one after another it's head to head uh yeah ruth v sam on whether or not um yeah these are facts or alternative facts so i'm going to be reading you a fact and uh, i just need you to tell me whether you think it's a real fact Or an alternative fact, obviously, referencing uh, Miss Kellyanne Conway's uh, recent uh, debates on uh, Meet the Press. So, um, coming to you first, Sam, are you ready for alternative fact quiz? I hope so. Okay. (laughs) Fact number one. Sam, this is the third time that Donald Trump has run for president. Fact or alternative fact? I'm going to go with alternative fact. Correct, it is alternative fact. Yes, whilst uh, he has run for president twice in real life, once in 2016 as a Republican and once in 2000 under the Reform Party, his only third attempt was actually fictional and in The Simpsons. Yes, correct. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, one point to Sam. no. Oh,
3: no. Stakes are high.
2: (laughs) So, uh... Now, coming to you, Ruth, uh, are you ready for alternative fact or fact? So ready. Okay, Uh, your fact. Before politics, Kellyanne Conway invented the spork. To this day, she still receives significant royalties from KFC.
3: (laughs) I really want that to be true. Uh, But I feel like the spork goes further back than that. Uh, I'm going to go alternative fact.
2: Correct, it's an alternative fact. Uh, it was actually painted in 1874 by wow. Samuel W. Francis. He's going back a long is now <laughs> most likely dead and uh, not in receipt of any royalties from KFC, no Aww. matter how they feel about it. Okay, one apiece. Uh, Sam, back to you for a fact, alternative fact. La La Land received a record-tying 14 nominations for this year's Oscar nominations. Well, fact or alternative facts. I'm going gonna... <sighs> to... You say Oscar nominations. 14 Oscar nominations as
4: a record-tying nomination level. I feel like it was 14 Golden Globes rather than... But I'm not sure. Oh, no. Uh, Alternative (laughs) fact wrong it is a fact yes oh. La La Land
2: uh, the musical tribute to Los Angeles dominated the Oscar nominations last month picking up 14 nods to tie the record set by Titanic and All About Eve
3: all of which they deserved right <laughs> yeah
2: absolutely me and Sam
3: had a huge oh, debate oh, about this oh, not, yeah, not I'm a, a massive
2: fan massive fan <laughs> 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 one apiece okay so Ruth uh, this is to you to take. can the we lead. not argue about La La Land for a bit it'd be much more fun uh, well, we'll come back to that in future episodes <laughs> um, Ruth coming back to you right this is to uh, take the lead it's still one come apiece on. oh. the big to trigger Article 50, recently debated in the House of Commons, was only 140 characters long. Fact or alternative fact?
3: Oh. Uh. I mean, in some senses, there wasn't much to say, was there? So I am gonna go. Oh, but then they are quite wordy, aren't they, in Parliament? So. Oh gosh. Uh,
2: <laughs> gonna have to push. I'm it.
3: gonna go. <laughs> fact?
2: Wrong. Alternative uh, fact. Uh, the historic bill that will trigger Article 50 is actually only 140 words long, not uh, 140 characters. Uh, oh, Sorry, yeah. caught you out. Okay, oh, so nice. this one, uh, Sam, uh, it's a tiebreaker and it's for the win because you're one apiece. Oh, so wow. I'm going to oh, uh, wow. see if is this on. is a sudden death situation. A Saudi prince's flight recently went viral when a photographer took a picture of over 80 falcons occupying the seats of a plane. Between 2002 and 2013, the UAE government issued more than 28,000 Falcon passports. Fact or alternative fact?
4: (laughs) I've (laughs) not heard about any of this before, um, so I'm totally guessing, but that sounds rather bizarre. Let's go. I can't believe I'm saying this.
1: I'm going to go fact (laughs) just because
4: why not? It is
2: a fact. Yes. A <laughs> yes. While a plane full of birds might not be an unusual sight to westernise, it's actually not that unusual in places like Saudi Arabia, wow. Kuwait, and Qatar. Wow. Well, falconry is commonplace, uh, and so that means that uh, Sam, you you kind of took it with the lead, unfortunately, wow. and so you are this month's winner of the Facts Alternative Fact thank Quiz. Thank you so much. Future editions of the quiz may return. I'd just like to thank in,
4: God and my mum. And do I get to make <laughs> a victory speech?
2: Um, unfortunately, not. But oh, we, so don't sure. have, so, so we don't right. have. you wrap it. For that. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, there'll be no wrapping on the show okay um, well, thank you very much this month to uh, to Ruth again and uh, Sam for joining us thank you. and for thank you for you. listening thanks for listening to this month's episode of Signal a podcast from the Media Net if you've got questions you want to ask us or comments on the show then you can do that via Twitter just ten- send a tweet to at the Media Net on Twitter with the hashtag Signal or you can contact us on Facebook as well and if you've got any other feedback for the rest of the team why not follow up Ruth where can they find you on Twitter?
3: They can find me at Ruth J Jackson
2: and Sam? I'm at Sam Hales. And I'm at James Poulter. Just James Poulter, really. Uh, thanks for <laughs> listening, and we will see you again next month on Signal, a podcast from the MediaNet.
1: Bye! <laughs>